Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. Today, Tony Riches is in the studio with me. Tony is a best-selling historical fiction author. He's very highly regarded in the Tudor world. And how would you describe yourself, Tony? Yeah, I describe myself as a full-time author because I don't have any other things to distract me. And it's I've specialised in the lives of the Tudors which has worked really well because all the research I do, visiting actual locations and digging out primary sources, um, can often be used in more than one book. So over the time, I've developed quite a, a knowledge of everything Tudor, from right from Owen Tudor right through to Elizabeth I. What started your interest in the Tudors? Well, I was born in Pembroke in Wales, which most people might know is the birthplace of Henry Tudor. And I wanted to find out more about him. So I I began researching for a book, the kind of book I wanted to read about him. There are plenty of uh, books, but they didn't give me a sense of what what the man was like. And I ended up collecting enough material for at least three books. So I decided to write the Tudor trilogy and I began with uh, the, meet, the first meeting between Owen Tudor, a Welsh servant, and the widowed Queen Catherine of Valois. And that really allowed me to have the birth of Henry Tudor in the first book, his coming of age with Jasper Tudor in the second book, and becoming King of England after the Battle of Bosworth in the third book of the trilogy. And I was really lucky because... It seemed to um, fit in at a particular point in time when people were also very interested in the backstory to the Tudors. I think they'd seen the television series and guessed that um, they hadn't been told everything that there was to know. And um, it was a huge success. So the, the trilogy became a bestseller in the US and the UK and then Australia. So I couldn't have hoped for more, really. Can you tell us what all you've written? Yeah, well, what happened was that once I'd finished the Tudor trilogy, uh, in the third book, the ailing Henry VII was nursed by his youngest daughter, Mary Tudor. And I became fascinated in her life story and researched it. And, of course, she became Queen of France and later became the husband of a chap called Charles Brandon, best friend of Henry VIII. So I decided to write the Brandon trilogy as a sort of follow-up to the Tudor trilogy. And it exactly dovetailed in so that you go from the third book of the first trilogy straight into 
the first book of the Brandon trilogy. And I really enjoyed researching it. I visited Westhorpe, which is where the, the, the Brandons lived. And I found the famous Tudor bridge, which had the um, Tudor symbols on it and things like that. Not a lot of people have been there. And while I was there, uh, the owner of the place showed me the various things that they'd got from the moat. And he gave me a piece of the, the stone window frame. So that's one of my treasured possessions. And the third book is after Mary died, Charles Brandon married Catherine Willoughby, who was uh, his, his ward. She was only 14. She was an heiress. And her story was equally as fascinating. And of course, she lived right up to the crown coronation of Elizabeth I. So that took me into the Elizabethan era. And I decided to write an Elizabethan series, which would be three of Queen Elizabeth's favourites and three of her ladies. So there's actually six books. So you could look at it as two more trilogies or each book stands alone. And I had quite a lot of fun deciding which of her three favourites I'd most like to write about. I was very tempted to write about Robert Dudley, but that's been done by a lot of people. So I wrote about Francis Drake, Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, and my new book is about Walter Raleigh. And each of them worshipped the Queen, but they saw her, they saw different facets of her and had a very different relationship with her. So that was quite fun to do. And it, it was a good way of exploring the complexity of Elizabeth through the eyes of her favourites. What I'm researching now is three of her ladies who, of course, they saw and heard everything that went on. But it's fascinating to look at the Elizabethan court through their point of view. That really is. And I'm curious about Raleigh. What made you choose him instead of someone like Hatton, who was also known to be smitten with Elizabeth? Yeah, I was I was looking at Hatton. But what happened was that um, Raleigh crops up in both of the other books. And I was looking for this third dimension and of course, he he was the Queen's protector. So whereas Drake used to come in with caskets of stolen jewels to impress the Queen, and perhaps you could call the Earl of Essex the errant son that she never had, uh, Raleigh was a very different thing again, and that he was very literary. He was ambitious, they were all ambitious, but um, he was ambitious in a different kind of way because he wanted to colonize um, other empires across the seas and I just found him intriguing and I decided that because he was around at the time of Elizabeth's death that's where I would end that book so it very conveniently um, takes me from the very first start of the Tudors to the end of the Tudor dynasty across the course of nine books. That's perfect timing. What what did you learn about Raleigh that really surprised you? <laughs> it's been the same with virtually all of the people that I've researched, is that virtually everything I thought I knew about them didn't actually stand the test of close scrutiny. And you probably found this yourself, is that at school, um, let's see, the, the things we were taught about Raleigh is he laid down his cloak for the Queen over a puddle, and that um, he introduced 
at least tobacco into England, if not the potato as well. And in fact, what I found was that the whole story about laying down his cloak at Greenwich is really quite questionable because it's first recorded by a chap called Thomas Fuller, who was born 20 years after the event. And he published the story in a book called The Worthies of England, uh, which wasn't published until 1662. And so although it's typical of the kind of thing Raleigh might have done, it's not the main thing he should be remembered for. And the same goes for him having a a servant throw a bucket of water over him when he was smoking a pipe at Sherbourne Castle. That doesn't check out either. It's a good story. But there were lots of seafarers who brought back pipes of tobacco long before he did. Uh, But what he did do is made it fashionable. So I think he's got a lot to answer for for that. But um, it's certainly true that he made smoking a a fashionable pastime. As for the potato, of course, he had a colony in Ireland and uh, he would have been encouraging um, the planting of potatoes. But again, there's no evidence of him actually introducing it uh, for the first time to anywhere at all. But what really surprised me was that I'd always imagined that he'd sailed with his fleet to... America and claimed it in the name of the Queen when in fact she forbade him to go at all. So he spent the whole time languishing at home and relying on his men to bring back reports of progress. And that was quite a surprise to me because I, I'd i misunderstood when I was at school and I thought he was actually leading those expeditions. In fact, he was doing very much from the safety of his um, study back in London. But they were his expeditions, is that correct? He paid for them? Yeah, they absolutely. Uh, we, like all of them, they had investors and the Queen herself would have been a, a sort of secret investor and that um, her money uh, was not openly being used because uh, if they came across Spanish treasure ships, they'd quite happily plunder them and it might cause her embarrassment. So various wealthy people in the Elizabethan court would have been only too happy to invest because there was a a lot of money to be made. And in fact, um, Raleigh used to go around telling them that they could have more land in the new world than they could ever manage. So uh, it was quite an attractive proposition to them. But in fact, uh, you might know about his um, expeditions to Roanoke, which resulted in what's known as the Lost Colony. And um, quite sadly, all of his settlers either integrated with the local um, Indian population or were murdered or or starved or whatever. We, we, will ne- we don't know. I'm hoping that archaeologists might discover the truth one day. But... Um, Certainly, uh, Raleigh didn't make a fortune out of that. And it's the same with um, El Dorado, the, the, the famous city of gold. He risked everything. This time he did persuade the Queen to let him go. I don't think she was too bothered by then. And um, he barely escaped with his life because uh, it was extremely dangerous. And, of course, 
even to this day, the city of El Dorado remains uh, a myth, really. It's never been located. Well, they say the legend is always better than the truth. So apparently that could be true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the good thing for me was when I... when I started writing about the Tudors with with Owen, it was very hard to find primary sources and anything at all that was Owen's voice. And when I when I was researching Raleigh, I had access to pretty much all of his surviving letters and, and the replies to them from other people and his poetic works. So that was amazing because I could really get a sense of his voice and how he spoke to different people. And um, was I was able to use, so in various places in the book, I've put verbatim extracts from his own actual letters and poems in italics so that the reader can see um, how, how his motivation might be working. That's brilliant. Glad to hear that. And that way you get the fiction and the history. That's perfect. I've always tried very hard to make sure that, although it's historical fiction, that the facts are as accurately researched as possible. And the historical fiction is putting flesh on the bones and capturing things that haven't survived to this day, like um, some of the servants that would have been their constant companions. And as I said, uh, their motivation, I tried to strip away the analysis of centuries and actually work out for myself what might have been driving uh, their ideas and the way that they um, determined their ambition, which was quite good fun to do, really. That also explains why you've been so successful with this, don't you think? Well, I think quite early on, a mother wrote to me and said, uh, just for me to know, her son was relying on my books as his way of learning his history. <laughs> and all of a sudden I felt this quite a huge responsibility to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. A lot of very successful authors have have used alternative history as a device. So they've tried to imagine what would happen if, uh, I don't know, um, Henry VIII's uh, first son had survived. It's, it's the anniversary of his death where we're making this recording. Or if Arthur Tudor had survived, what would have happened to the dynasty? You know, there's lots of fun you can have with things like that. But my preference is to be factually accurate. And then if people wish to go off and dig deeper, they'll find that they've got a really good starting point with a good context uh, for further exploration. I like that when I'm reading historical fiction. I like to think I'm learning something at the same time. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. 
Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. So there's three books in your Elizabethan series, but you don't call them a trilogy, correct? That's right, because what I'm doing as we speak is I'm researching that I've done the three men, that Elizabeth's three, three of her favourites, she had many favourites, it was how she operated, I think. It's quite a good system, isn't it? Keep keep your favourites close to you. And I thought it'd be a, a completely refreshing change, not just for me, but for the readers as well, to then switch to three of her ladies, each of whom is very different, but they all cross over. So they're in some way or other related to the three men. And some of them crop up in the other books as well. But this time... I'm looking at events from their point of view. So it's how they see the Queen, how she talks to them, how they see somebody like uh, Drake or Devereux or even Raleigh and how they interact with them. And uh, there's lots of fun to be had with that within the constraint of the, the official record. And you might know that virtually every day of the Elizabethan court can be tracked down and there are very detailed chronicles of what happened day by day. And I've got lots of letters and accounts, first-hand accounts, uh, primary sources. And fortunately, most of them aren't written in Latin. They're written in English or perhaps a bit of French that I can understand. So uh, it's quite easy to be very detailed. And I love those little details about how they dressed and the conventions, the social conventions that most people either don't know about or they've only really learnt about through the TV adaptations and the movies. And of course, depending on the budget, uh, that can be highly variable. I'm fairly impressed with the series Becoming Elizabeth, but once again, every now and then there are things which uh, raise an eyebrow in that. But of course, uh, they're trying to concentrate on the cinematic storytelling, whereas in a, uh, a series of three or six books, you've got a lot more scope to cover much more detail. Absolutely. Can you share with us which of the ladies you are writing about? Um, I will do over the course of the next three years because <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing more frustrating than to have somebody jump the gun and and publish a, a book about a certain individual a month before you do. That has happened to me. Uh, I don't let it bother me. I, I make a point of not reading other historical fiction about the same characters that I'm writing about because there's such a thing as kind of unwitting plagiarism whereby it lodges in your thoughts and then you might write it as an original piece and then find out later on that it's uncannily close to what somebody else has written. So I prefer to focus on biographies and um, non-fiction accounts to supplement the letters and papers that I've got access to. And then I can be much more confident that whatever I produce is at least an original approach. Yes, and that's a very good idea. Of the ladies, have you found any situations where they might 
might have, and I say might because I don't think you could actually chastise the queen, but where, let's say, one of them said, Elizabeth, you're giving too much attention to Drake, or you're being too nice to Raleigh, were they bold enough to (laughs) say those kinds of things to the queen? Well, absolutely. And this is is one of the areas where historical fiction has a, a a job to do, you see, because what we've got are the often quite dry um, factual accounts of, of who met with the Queen and on what date and perhaps even what they said. And, and we've got ambassadors' accounts that have been translated. Uh, there are some very well-known ones about what the ambassadors thought of the Queen. But what we don't have is what happened within the, the privacy of the privy chamber or the, the Queen's bedchamber while they were helping her prepare for bed. And those that knew her extremely well would have had a degree of familiarity, I believe, and that's what I'm going to enjoy um, exploring a bit, because she was very sharp, um, but she wasn't daft. She wouldn't be getting rid of somebody for um, speaking what she would understand to be the truth. But they, they would use judgment as well. Most all of them... Um, got to where they were because they were really quite intelligent women. And um, I want to show more of that because uh, they, they tend to come across as sort of cardboard cutouts in a lot of cases. And I want to explore that in more depth. Well, we're looking forward to that. Let's get back to Raleigh. Can you give us a synopsis of your work and where we can find it? Yes, well... All my books are available on Amazon and the the Elizabethan series is currently being produced as, as an audio editions. So all the others are already in audio book editions, but they're also um, ebook and paperbacks and hardbacks. And full details are on my website, which is tonyriches.com. So that's easy to remember. And I'm quite active on Twitter as well. So um, if anybody's got any uh, questions about any of my books, I quite enjoy that. They can either, there's a contact me page on my website, or they're quite welcome to ask me directly on Twitter. That's that's fine as well. I'm, I'm on most days talking to readers and supporting other authors, which I quite enjoy doing. And I think that's how we met, isn't it? Yes, I think it is, because I, <laughs> I run a blog called The Writing Desk, which I'm, 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 quite, I'm quite proud to say it's had over 1.2 million visitors. So that's a, a massive audience. And um, what I do is I encourage, because it takes time to write um, posts on the blog every day. So I do, when I'm not writing, I do um, book reviews of other authors' work. And I also encourage them to do guest posts for me. And uh, if they've got a book launch coming up, I feature that as well. And that's worked extremely well. But um, normally, this this time of year is my research time, you see, the summer. Because what I do is I research throughout when the weather's good and go sailing and kayaking and stuff. And then I start writing in September and I write through until the spring when I switch, I hand the master, the master copy across to my editor, my long-suffering editor, and um, she then uh, tries to turn it around in time for 
launching um, sort of April, May time, really. And then the whole process starts over again. So I wrote one book a year these days. So I've got the next three years mapped out. I still haven't even got around to thinking about what I might tackle after that. Well, you'll definitely come up with something. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my guest today and spending time with the All Things Tudor Gang. I look forward to you coming back again. And you know you are welcome to visit again at any time. Well, thank thank you very much for that. And uh, what would be good fun is to come back when I launch the first of the ladies next year and talk about her because um, quite a few people have asked me uh, which one am I tackling first and why? Because there's there's quite a lot of them. There's 20 or 30 of Elizabeth's ladies to choose from. And the three that I've chosen each has a very good reason behind them for choosing and they're all very different as I did with the men. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, so are we. And yeah, look forward to you coming back. Thanks a lot, Tony. Have a good day. Thank you and you, Deb. Thank you. Goodbye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.